Welcome. All right, everybody. Welcome back to uh, to another episode of Energy Bites. Rad Dad here with my trusty co-host, Bobby Nealon. What's going on? Repping the socks today. Absolutely. As long as it's not the Yankees. We're, Let's go. We're never the Yankees. <laughs> Hashtag never Yankees. <laughs> We're uh, we're here today with with Ryan Rice, founder and uh, self proclaimed janitor at uh, ResNet AI. <laughs> appreciate you coming on, Ryan. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited that you left your hat so I can uh, taunt you with it on this episode. I don't know if I know. you noticed me changing it. <laughs> My but... <laughs> favorite hat. Usually, uh, usually I'm always wearing it to, to rep the uh, Unleash USLNG. I've, well, but, I figured uh, I, yeah, I forgot I, it. I figured I'd rep it for you since you left it in the studio. Oh, you're week. wearing? Are you wearing, I'm wearing it? Right right wearing now, it. Maybe. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and for the, uh, I guess, the audio listeners, it's Marcellus over Moscow. Yeah, it's hundred percent great cap. Yeah, I need to give me one of those. Yeah, I know. Anyway, and no. our, our development team loves it too because our our development team's hundred percent Ukraine. Oh yeah, so they're like you know, <laughs> all about it. So we have a. We have a saying, you know, one of our, our higher missions at, at ResNet is to beat the hell out of Russia with respect to <laughs> regaining energy independence and that. making up for all of their lost market share. Yeah, that's awesome. That seems to inspire the guys when they think about how much, you know, Russia's GDP comes from energy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, last company I worked for, all of our dev team was in Ukraine as well. And when the war started, that really changed a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, at, uh, there was about six weeks, yep. unfortunately, right, where kind of things slowed down, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few weeks where you can hear bombs going off yeah, in the wild. background. Limited connectivity, just power, all that fun stuff. Total, totally wild. Really kind of puts things into perspective yeah. of like what matters in life where, <laughs> yeah. you know, my guys are, you know, fleeing their homes, their villages, you know, staying out in the middle of nowhere. They're afraid for their, their lives. Yeah. Um, puts things into perspective of what truly matters. For sure. Yeah. Need right. more of that. <laughs> no, no. It's uh, more perspective, not more war. But. Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, that tends mm-hmm. to be the, <laughs> more the it's always the yeah. bad things that trigger that perspective typically. But um, appreciate you coming on, man. We, uh, I think the first time we met was at, uh, was at Fuse last year when, when we did the pitch competition, that was a, I I a might blast. have gotten some champagne on you. When we, <laughs> I love uh, it. That's what I wanted. We're celebrating. <laughs> That's what I, uh, I was really trying to get those, uh, champagne guns that they, they have to, uh, spray everybody with, but we couldn't, couldn't get those in in time. You know, what was funny is, uh, I had bought like a t-shirt cannon <laughs> for that. It was like, you know, give the people what they want. Yeah. But I, I showed up to Fuse and like, this thing was like a legitimate like device where, <laughs> You know, I'm like, man, the cops, like the cops stopped us when we were coming in with it. Cause it looks right. like a sniper rifle, like <laughs> yeah. rocket launcher had to explain to him like, no, like this is a really dumb idea I had with shooting people with the t-shirt He's bringing a big gun. And then, like I'm putting yeah. the, I'm putting the thing together and it's like, you need a CO2 canister. I don't have a CO2 canister. I go to like, I run down to like the sports outdoor, like, no man, like you got to go to the gun, you know, we don't have that, you know, <laughs> on stock. So didn't get to use the t-shirt cannon, but it's sitting in my closet, you know, for the next time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll have to make some, find some ways to make use of that. I think, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't know you had a t-shirt cannon with you. That's incredible. <laughs> Pro tip for <laughs> all the, uh, back. all the pitch competitions and tech night guys for next year. Right. Yeah. You got to do it. I'll break it give the people next energy tech give the people what they want 100 <laughs> percent. 
Well, Brian, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit, a little bit about you. How'd you, uh, how'd you end up as a, a founder at resident? How'd you get into the kind of energy tech space? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, kind of a long journey to this point. Um, but you know, our, our family, uh, my three brothers, myself, you know, we're, we're originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and so I broke out into the industry actually when my older brother, Toby's, you know, founded and started rice energy. I, I was in high school at the time, um, ended up moving in with him, um, to kind of just, you know, it was always cool to hang out with big bro, yeah. um, learn what he was doing. So ended up moving in with him after high school. Uh, I was the lackey intern, whatever <laughs> they needed, uh, got done. So I didn't know what I was doing at that time, but a lot of, you know, mining the court docks, you know, for landowners, that was the name of the game. Then I had no idea. They didn't really educate me as far as like why I was doing what I was right. doing. Just go do this. Yeah. Um, but kind of started doing that. Got to go out in the field right after, you know, business moved from land and developing our land position to actual operations, constructing well sites, the pad, drilling of the wells. So started working roustabout, worked on rig floor, you know, for, for a while. Um, got to snub in tubing and our first well without knowing that that's the most dangerous <laughs> yeah. oil field operation. They didn't, they didn't tell me that, you know, we, we drilled our first well, the X-Man 1V. Um, we had to snub in some tubing and I'll never forget. It was like January in the dead of winter, you know, in Southwestern PA, it's zero degrees out, Man. just miserable. And Toby's just like, you know, why, why don't you get up there? That's a good experience for you, man. I get up there and you know, hot water is just blowing in our face. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't get me down from that rig floor because it was so much better than being on, on the, the location, mm -hmm. freezing my ass off. Um, so after about two years of doing that, I realized I was never going to have a girlfriend or a life living yeah. in a trailer <laughs> in uh, Green County. Green County is great in Pennsylvania, but, you know, not the, not the best, you know, nightlife or anything <laughs> for a 19-year-old. Yeah. Um, so... I was very passionate about really working with my brothers. They had, you know, really mentored and guided me my whole life in terms of major life decisions, sports, everything. I was very passionate about still following in their footsteps, but I decided like, hey, I, I need to have a life. I want to be technical. Um, so I want to be a petroleum engineer. Uh, I went to Texas A&M. I kind of told the guys uh, last week, you know, what that was like. I, I'd never seen Daisy Dukes before. Um, <laughs> I go to game day at A&M. <clears throat> immediately fall in love with it. So I, I did my petroleum engineering degree at A&M, class of 14. Uh, while doing that, I was working for Chevron uh, as a drilling and completions consultant. Uh, this was, you know, 2012, 2014 industry was really taking off. There was a lack of supply in the market. And, you know, being a guy that actually had fundamental, like on, you know, hands-on drilling experience, um, got to have the uh, unique opportunity to kind of work full-time with Chevron um, while I was getting my degree. Um, the good old days. And man. then having... Having lived that life of like, this is what it's like to live in, like, you know, not for my brothers. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of really got a great gig at Chevron. I was going to go do that. And when my brothers found out that I accepted a full time offer with Chevron, <laughs> uh, they flew down to AM, uh, broke up with my girlfriend for me, physically kidnapped and dragged <laughs> me back to Pittsburgh. Um, and that's where uh, really it was, it was similar to my internship, like wherever I could be helpful. Yeah. And at that time we didn't, we didn't have any, you know, petroleum engineers in the business. And so naturally, you know, as we were, you know, taking the company public, focusing on our well results, our reserves, naturally, um, I just got into data analytics, some production and reservoir engineering work. 
Um, and that's really where I just fell in love um, more so with with big data and digital technologies and how we could keep rice energy as lean and mean as like physically possible. Um, and so that that's really how I broke out was just, you know, a journey just, you know, following along where, where my brothers were, were kind of guiding me and then honestly just falling in love with the work and the people, um, you know, that I had that opportunity to do with. Yeah. And then uh, we did that for a few years. Um, once we kind of, you know, sold the business to EQT uh, in 17, uh, it didn't take us very long to jump right back into the mix. I think we took like six weeks off. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> and then um, we started Rice Investment Group, Rice Investment Group, uh, private equity, venture capital. Um, where we started to put, put some of our money back to work in the energy space around things that we were passionate about. Um, you know, when we when we saw it, like, what are the things that we wish we had as operators 10 years ago? Right. Let's invest in those solutions. And so we, we've invested in traditional private equity style deals, backing a few upstream management te uh, teams, um, companies like Pinion Resources in the Midland. Uh, we just had a process of transaction um, with Birch that was, you know, closed a few weeks ago. So that was a good win. And then uh, as well as XCL resources in the Uinta, which is a reservoir engineer's dream. Right. Yeah. Right. Some of the best reservoirs in the world um, in the Uinta. So that's been great. And then we also, you know, dipped our toes in the venture capital space with, you know, putting seed investments in companies like Combo Curve, for instance. Um, you guys had Kelvin AI. Yeah. Um, we're investors in Kelvin. Uh, Cold War Technologies. Uh, I can go yeah, down. We have yeah. 15, about 15 portfolio companies um, split between like hard assets as well as tech. Um, a few great wins under our belt. But in 2020, um, you know, after we had fully committed and deployed our capital, um, you know, I, I had the itch uh, to start commercializing a lot of the ideas and applications that we had built at Rice Energy um, that I was just super, super passionate about. Um, again, thinking that, you know, there, there could be a need for the industry as a whole for this. And so ResNet was born in 2020 uh, during the pandemic, yeah. you know, I think like a week after negative 40 oil um, <laughs> with with the thesis there being, you know, oh, oh, man, th this is the this is the bus that really kills us. You know, we're going to be maybe at thirty dollar oil from here on out. I mean, really need to focus on production operations, you know, maximizing efficiency. Rigs and frat crews are going to be laying down. And that certainly wasn't the case. Right. So kind of missed the thesis there. But at the end of the day, making sure that, you know, we're reducing our downtime um, and maximizing our, our operational efficiency is still obviously, um, you know, an objective and initiative yeah. for every operating company. Yeah, those, so those never go out of vogue. Right. I mean, like, yeah, like spend right. less and make more. Good. I, I think, too, like with our generation going through the last 10, 15 or so years in the industry. Right. Like, I think we're we've almost become accustomed to this, like the crazy volatility and these swings, right? That like, in my mind, why wouldn't you want to move forward with the assumption that, hey, there's gonna be this volatility in the future because of a variety of reasons. Like we need to be optimized all of the time, not just when prices are, <laughs> are low or negative, just like, you know, historically speaking, that's generally what, what happens, right? Is, oh shit, we've got to be able to make, you know, break even at $50 a barrel. How do we do that? And so everybody's hyper-focused on cost then, then it gets up to 80, hundred plus, you know, when we started in the industry and it's like, no one gives a shit about cost or spending. Yeah. It's just get it out of the ground as quickly as you can before it drops back below a hundred. Right. And so it's this weird cycle that <laughs> the industry kind of lives in. Yeah. And then people are chasing it. And by the time they've right. optimized the price to back up and then yeah. loosen the belts. So, yep. 
Yep. But yeah, if there's one thing that we can be certain of is if, you know, history repeats itself mm-hmm. and there absolutely will be a future bust and another boom mm-hmm. and, you know, the cycle will repeat. And so making sure that, you know, we're just putting some of those initiatives top of mind and, and not changing some of those longer term objectives, despite that volatility, because the volatility is always going to be. Yeah. Great. Well, so let's, let's back up a minute because I mean, when I first started kind of in the technology side, rice was one of the companies, I mean, among like the Devons, the Anadarkos of the world that, you know, from my firsthand experience working as a sales engineer and stuff, like y'all kind of set the bar um, early on, in my opinion, like industry wide even. Um, y'all were one of the first companies to really set the bar around like pushing things forward, pushing for digital, pushing for, you know, IoT and connectivity and leveraging all of those things. Can you kind of talk, uh, just talk a little bit about that, like in the early days and stuff, right? Like, cause you, a lot of people don't have that unique experience of both being at an operator, but also being in a startup at an operator where it's like, Hey, we have mm-hmm. kind of a, a blank, slate. blank slate to start this, how we would want to do it versus inheriting, you know, a bunch of stuff from an acquisition or from, you know, being at an existing company. So I'm very curious, you know, cause I remember my very first job straight out of the field was selling spider gauges. Um, and you Use know, a few of those. yeah. And when we were trying to, I was trying to call on rice and all this stuff and, uh, you know, the, but by that point you guys either owned your own, I think y'all had your own and y'all were trying to figure out the communications piece of it. Like if you could stream them or not. And that's when we kind of initially started talking, but even then like y'all, the economics aren't that great when, when the operator already owns their own gauges as long yeah. as they can actually go and execute the tests and the monitoring uh correctly and accurately and stuff but talk talk a little bit more yeah. about kind of building that from scratch and how you guys did things differently and stuff and yeah and it's funny you ask that because um now looking back on it there, there's a few instances where i'm i'm going to be probably one of the world's biggest hypocrites no, I mean, that's the, the build versus. Yeah, that's exactly but, what we want to talk about, right? Because yeah. it's, it's yeah. all of this stuff is one of those things that like, unless you have experience in it, it is so hard to know like, hey, I need to buy this versus building or, you know, cloning this repo and what well, I'll spend doing it myself. What you want is on the market. Yeah, that's a whole nother, <laughs> like, which I'm sure 10, yeah. 15 years ago was probably even harder <laughs> than it is today. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. Um I, I would, it's, it's kind of funny, but you know, there, there's a certain, um, assumption maybe, and it, to some degree it might be an incorrect assumption that like, it was all like a master plan, um, to begin with. And none of it was, we, we just kind of like stumbled into these things out of pure ignorance to, to be quite honest with you, um, pure ignorance around what type of solutions were available in the market, right? Where, there were a few instances where we were custom building solutions where if we just had better education, you know, similar to what you guys are doing at Digital Wildcatters with helping promote that education in the industry, um, where we might not have, have, you know, custom built a few of those solutions. Um, but when we, you know, were on our digital evolution journey, it really just came down to the fact that um, we were always in the trenches ourselves, you know, shoulder to shoulder with with our team members. And so there was a deep empathy for when solutions didn't do exactly what we needed to. And we could all agree as a team as far as, well, how should this function, right? So 
an easy example might be around the, the reserves um, piece. Um, after about an hour of, you know, spent like an, literally an hour within Aries or Valnav, um, I could not do what I needed to do for the business, right? And I knew exactly what we needed to do for the business. And so it was more along the lines of, well, I'm just going to do it, right? Um, and build what works for us at that time. And hence, you know, why, why things like Combo Group right. make so much sense when we invest in those, you know, as investors at, at Rice Investment Group. Um, but a lot of it came down to our roots as a family owned company and having deep, deep level of ownership around our assets and our people at the end of the day, where, you know, we, we had grew from when it was just the, the four of us to when it was, you know, a dozen of us, two dozen of us to our first hundred employees until the point where it was 600 employees. Um, and so because of just that deep empathy and level of ownership, um, I think it, it it set a new standard, yeah. you know, for the organization in terms of like what what is winning like, right? And we would also simplify to that degree, like what is winning? Winning can be something as simply as Toby's able to answer this question um, in a in a board meeting, right? Yeah. Without having to harass, you know, some department head or some tech or analyst for that information. And so a lot of it came down to reducing the pain points and access to information, and that's where. Um, Again, almost ac accidentally or serendipitously, um, we had made the decision um, to start building everything within um, a customer relationship management platform, yeah. mind you, um, called Salesforce, right? The quintessential CRM, the ticker symbol CRM, um, because the access to information and the transparency it provided the organization, as well as just the added layer of accountability, mm -hmm. right? And, and what, what that I mean is it's one thing if someone's emailing me for something, right? And then perhaps I you know, the day gets ahead of me, you know, there's a few fires I need to put right. out um, and I just forget. Right. And I'm only accountable to that, that one person. And Hey man, I'm sorry. I, I, I the day got ahead of me. I, I'll get to it tomorrow. And it's a whole other world. If someone is requesting that information, like in the equivalent of a Facebook right. yeah. page where the entire organization can see that my peer has asked for my help on something and did it take me an hour to get back to him? Did it take me a day to get back to him or a week? Um, that layer of transparency around like who is helping one another in the fastest, bestest way possible, then, you know, to some degrees, gamification, which we can talk about yeah. as far as ResNet's concerned around social influence. Um, but just having that transparency was a lot of the reason why we, we made the decision to go to Salesforce. And then really just understanding how we could digitize um, quite literally, like every business process yeah. to understand, again, like, are we winning, right? If we're going to be going into this this quarterly call, how, how do we have the confidence that we can answer every question that's going to come to us and that we're proud, you know, to to speak to these results? Um, because it just came back to like this, our name was on the building. Yep. And so we we took a deep level of ownership of being the best that we could be. And so that that's a new standard for the organization as a whole. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you're spot on. I think the big differentiation between kind of the big companies that have a lot of resources, but are kind of difficult to work in versus the, the leaner, more innovative companies that kind of set industry standards is that it's the access to information and, you know, the, the ability to give people the information they need to do their job, right? Like, and it sounds so stupid and simple when you just like say that out loud. Right. But that's such a hard thing in so many companies because as they get bigger, you get 
layers of bureaucracy. You've got IT departments. You've got data privacy, security. Like you've got all those things, which you get desensitized, right? And they're important. You get totally desensitized. However, yeah, if they're in, you know, if they're impeding an employee from doing their job, they're probably not <laughs> as functional as they they need to be, right? Um, well, and yeah, like you, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up if you didn't. But even just something as simple as Salesforce, right? Like you talked about, you know, the psychology side of it. But even like as someone who was a vendor of EQTs at one point in time, like having the ability to, you know, have conversations and, and essentially Slack channel forum type feeds with not only myself and whoever I was dealing with at EQT, but also any other vendor that was involved in that project, right? Like that happens over like emails at most companies, right? And like, that's a horribly it's, it's inefficient way of year. doing that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a year and you might have like, and, and that was, it's funny, but uh, the Salesforce implementation actually started in the most easiest use case, which was around land. Right. Right. We, we had a hundred landmen, you know, that were talking to over 30,000 landowners on any given day. And, and Toby and his, his wife, my sister-in-law, his wife, Eileen, um, running our, our, our land program. And so he was always out, well, where's this contract right. at? Where are we at with this unit over here? And he would and toby's ability to distill down the the root of the problem is something that's still to this day extremely impressive to me he would always distill it down to like listen man i'm not going to spend 30 minutes going through this file you know this public directory right. path that's like a rat's nest i don't even know how you guys operate in <laughs> yeah. this i'm not going through emails i'm I, I need to be able to click by unit and understand exactly where we're at in this process and so dumbing down the problem to just like we're not going to waste 30, 40, 50 minutes a day. He's like, we have 600 employees. You add that up over a course of the day, we are literally burning dollars yep. for every minute that it takes someone to find this information. And so it was really focusing on like the foundation, making sure everything was well architected, very well organized, going back to that, you know, access to information. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even yep. just the ability to build on top of it too, right? Like the flexibility yes. of some of the, I mean, we use HubSpot here at DW. When Bobby and I worked together, we used a tool called QuickBase, which is like a low-code ERP platform. Yep. Um, and like those tools, I feel like a lot of people sleep on them or they think they're exclusively for one, like they're for sales or sales and marketing or whatever, right? And it's like the fact that they're customizable actually allows a lot to be able to be done on that, right? Like entire businesses literally built. Yeah, you can create these a platforms. database and you can create a yep. and then you can create a front end to it. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I want to dive in. So were you using Salesforce for any number of things? It sounded like maybe that was like almost an owner relations or a land kind of management platform as it's, well. Um, it started, it started with land. Right. And then, um, like Salesforce implementation was great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the best solutions, but it also took an insane amount of investment and time and resources mm -hmm. to get it to work the way we needed it to work. Yeah. Right. And, and so here, here's born ResNet around, you know, building a, debundling that to your point you know john we so you, everyone could build an operating system for an emp within salesforce but the time yeah. and energy yeah. and resources it's going to take is is quite long because it's not specifically designed right. no. for you know heavy asset industrial yeah. management i think that's right? where a lot of people get hung um, up on those those types of platforms right is it's like oh well you know it can do everything but because it can do everything now i'm scared of it and like yeah. Well, it, and you have to, you know, to start. like the upfront costs and the learning curve and all well, of you that. You have to so. have a narrow focus. Like, yeah, yeah. we're going to solve this problem first. You can't say, oh, I can do these 20 <laughs> things right. and I do 20 things half assed. Yeah. I mean, like, you got to say, like, I'm going to make this a really good owner relations platform. And then, well, look, we did this and we can do this similar workflow right. for 
xyz making sure it has those capabilities to go beyond what your first kind of target or scope is so that you're not now stuck is another big piece of it too right like right yeah so we started and then we just we started in land and then fundamentally uh, the deployment and adoption across the uh, across the company was with respect to our business right so okay land that is taking that we we have that under control now what's the next part right. in the process as far as the cycle of a well okay permitting and now we go to permitting let's digitize all of permitting processes okay now that's good what's the next step construction okay let's get construction yeah. and so we worked towards towards the wellhead gotcha. um one by one department by department to get that adoption to get that buy-in from the entire company right respecting everyone's you know bespoke nuance edge cases to their flows and things like that um but one by one focusing on the departments working our way back towards the wellhead um, and that was a four year journey. Yeah. Did it help? It sounds because you started with land, I'm assuming you structured and you can tell me as much or as little as you want here, but it, it sounds like you started where it was structured basically down to, you know, the asset lease kind of level out of the gate, which I probably sounds kind of, again, obvious, but I don't feel like a lot of people like, because you've, it was founded, the foundation was that moving it from there all the way to, you know, production and operations makes sense because that's <laughs> that's what how all those are kind of organized and categorized and grouped anyway right mm-hmm. yep and, and and you know there were some some growing pains right where you know how we architected things for land was was not how things need to be architected right. you know for the lease operator working on that well right but you're absolutely right we would start on like a unitization lease level basis getting all of our landowners the contacts into those leveraging cases, you know, to digitize the work mm-hmm. that way, Toby, the brothers can understand like who's doing what, right. you know, how are we winning today? Um, and then eventually working towards, you know, where Salesforce served as, you know, our asset management system. And so um, with ResNet, I'm, I'm working backwards yeah. now, right? Focusing at the wellhead production operations. And then as there's potentially other use cases within DNC or things like that, we, we could look at that, but Right now, our, our primary focus as a startup ourselves is, is on production operations. Sweet. So how about if we want to pivot and make it you know, a little more about your personal journey with tech and everything? When did you get in? I mean, do you code or when did you start getting into even some light development? I mean, was this something, did you ever touch it in high school or was it just kind of as you got into it and had problems you needed to solve, you kind of figured it out? Yeah, yeah. It, it, the latter, right? As we had problems just figuring out, you know, self-teaching myself. Um, I don't do as much deep development work today, mm-hmm. just given my current role sure. as a janitor. Yeah. Um, but at, at Rice, very much so, you know, punching in the keystrokes, um, coding a lot of our solutions. Um, I, I started off, uh, you know, in VBA, even if you want to call that. Yeah, no, that's coding. Um, I mean, but some of the things that we were... We we're doing, I'm but sure that really complete. kind of opened my eyes. Yeah. And then, um, you know, from VBA to, to more actual, you know, programming, um, Python, some R, um, spent a lot of my time in R, um, just given the, the nature of some of the bigger data projects yeah. um, that I was running uh, on our exploration side. Um, but then within, within ResNet, um, more so helping guide and, and, mentor you know our development team around the context right. of the data and then myself learning right I, I 
personally, I've never, you know, coded, you know, in JavaScript as much. And so I'm learning that side of the business, you know, with Node.js and React and React Native. Um, but a lot of it was much more bespoke purpose, you yeah. know, functions, um, ETL routines, a lot of data-driven workflows where we were using Python and R to do that. Um, a little shout out for a company called Ultrix. I'm not sure if you guys yeah. have heard that, but that's a great citizen development type of tool um, around empowering everyone in the organization to potentially be data engineers yeah. to some degree. Um, so we were big fans of that at, at Rice. Um, but yeah. So you know, let's talk about that a little bit because I mean, the kind of the citizen developer side of it because you know there's pros and cons like it meaning because you can it can turn into the wild west you know you get too many you know hands in there but at the same time you want to allow people to solve problems and do them in a robust way because again people are going to find a way if you put up too much friction they're going to find a way around what you're doing and you know they're going to create workflows that you didn't want anyways but um can you talk about kind of that citizen developer program even if it was kind of unintentional per se you know at rice but like how y'all manage that from even like i say a governance standpoint but then like the pros and cons that you saw with it yeah sure um so at, so at rice energy we, we call them the wizards um which were individual <clears throat> team members usually you know uh engineers much like yourselves to be honest you know that understand the context some of the technical nature of the work um, but had some type of programming data engineering experience. Um, and so we embedded, you know, a wizard in each kind of department. Yep. And then um, I worked with with our wizards to help communicate cross department, you know, priorities and why things had to be a certain way to respect, you know, the needs of your customers, right? If, if drilling and completions is a customer of, of construction and permitting, or if production operations is a customer of DNC, right? Helping kind of illuminate that empathy that needed to, to be present in the architecture you know, from end to end, from land to permitting all the way, you know, to, to the wellhead. And so we embedded, um, you know, these, these individuals in each department and then, you know, just kind of typical project management, you know, weekly type of scrums, stand-ups to understand where different objectives were and how all of those puzzle pieces came towards uh, our higher order objective as a company, right? So, um, digitizing some processes where we knew we were at, you know spending hundreds of hours right. you know between multiple different people to get these processes done every month or every quarter yep. and focusing you know where there was a lot of juice to be squeezed oh, absolutely i mean that doesn't sound too dissimilar to what we're doing we've got a kind of a you know you call them wizard but i mean we got an analyst in each different group and then you know they kind of sync up with my group and i don't manage them per se like they they report to the you know production engineering manager or the dnc manager but you know they we sync up every week like, what, what are you working on and making sure there's no overlap um that again mm -hmm. they know what's going on in the other groups so that they can leverage what other, pe other people are doing so no that's mm -hmm. you know at least encouraging maybe to know that we're on a on a good track or something that's been done before so yeah and and and, and to your other question in terms of like sometimes it can be chaos right yep. um absolutely i think there's a certain level of chaos we have to be comfortable with sure. if we're going to be moving at the velocity right. that we need to be for the business. And so managing that, and now it's a separate problem. How do we manage this chaos, yeah. right? And so we fundamentally, you know, had the opinion at Rice, we need to empower every single one of our, of our team members, of our employees, of our partners to get their job done at the end of the day. Yeah. And 
you know, I, I would always joke like, how dare I tell someone what tool they can use yep. to get their job done? Amen. It's not my job to tell you what tool you should be using to get your job done. Um, what should be my job is how can I empower you to use the best tool for your job and make it work for your customers, right? So my philosophy um, has always been using the best solution to get the job done and treating the integration of it as a separate problem. Yeah. And so I see a lot of organizations today, um, this might be like a little bit in the weeds, but, um, you know, uh, Bobby, you mentioned, you know, data analytics at Grayson, right? And, you know, you're doing some work in Spotfire. Yep. Um, I see a lot of organizations right now where there's, there's an internal fight with IT to get the entire business into Power BI. Why? Because Power BI is, is much easier to manage. Um, it's cheaper. Say it's also it's cheaper free because they're giving them all the credits for right Azure shop right but um we have a lot of organizations that are forcing yeah. users mm -hmm. into power bi without actually listening to some of their customers right yeah like in reservoir where we're doing these massive big data projects where power bi is just honestly not the best tool for some of those problems but now you have this tension between it and the business where they want everyone in power bi and you have the engineers that are actually doing right. you yeah. know, the work every day saying like, I can't do what you need me to do in this other tool. And then there's just constant friction around like everyone's mindset of wanting to get like everything in one place yeah. rather than perhaps, you know, viewing it like perhaps we could have one middleware integration place exactly. that everything connects to, but we can use pinpointed solutions, you know, the best hammer to nail that nail when we need to. No, hundred percent. so Amen. that's where I spend a lot of my time on is on the integration kind of middleware front trying to empower the teams. Yeah, because I mean, that's kind of where we we're using Snowflake and that's our data warehouse. But, um, and we've talked a lot about this, but say our accounting department, I'm not going to pry Excel out of their cold dead hands. Like, so I can either fight it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> or I can help them. And, and so I mean, and now they're pulling data in, whether it's directly from a Power BI data set or from an ODBC connection to Snowflake and they're getting reproducible workflows, but they get to work in something that they're comfortable with and everyone wins. Yes. Um, it's funny because I mean, you've mentioned empathy quite a bit and I was uh, kind of going back and forth with a guy on a on baseball Twitter side, but he kind of asked a question about meeting. What does meeting people where they're at you know, mean to you? And I kind of brought up that example and he's like, well, why do you think that is? And I was like, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of like usually in IT telling people this is what you have to use. And it's like, it's because they don't have any empathy. They're, they're not on the ground floor. They're, they're not there trying to close the books at the end of the month. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my revenue right. accountants. Yeah, maybe they could be better if they could learn some Python and do something like but they, they don't have the time that they're trying to close things out. Like that is the la last thing they want to do is learn a new tool. They know they can get the job done. So why don't I help them where they're at and, you know, make uh -huh. their life better, make, make it easier. And everyone wins because the company, you know, gets to do things more efficiently too. Yeah. Well, and it's like, if you're, if you're forcing power BI in for whatever reason, but let's make, let's make the assumption that it's because you're getting a hell of a deal on it compared to Spotfire because that's their, <laughs> their it is. Their I, sales I just, I just re-upped our Spotfire yeah. subscription. It's, it, yeah. You're getting a better quote unquote deal right well that's um, what i was getting at right like so the okay the per seat license is cheaper or free whatever but then now these people that are Spotfire experts have to spend hours if not weeks learning all of learning. this new stuff and refactoring is, if you're yeah, gonna, if you're going to get off Spotfire, say, you have to refactor and then yeah and then migrating yeah, up, right and then there's no investment yep there's no return on that investment right. like what like this is working for us today right why why are we going to refactor yeah. everything to to for some you know unbeknownst reason as to just the idea of getting everything right. in one place like if it's not and performance 
if it's not showing that like hey this is going to save you hours and hours of time where there's like a very tangible difference there then like i could not agree with you more and i think you're a lot of the stuff you've talked about today is just like it's so simple again but like focusing on the amount of time that an employee spends doing something and if you can reduce that or eliminate that or automate it right like how much more time you're that you know six-figure employee that you're paying to sit there and the entire staff of those six-figure employees in the accounting department or wherever and it's like that compounds incredibly quickly when you start thinking about how much they get paid per hour and how many hours every single one of them is wasting on this stupid step yeah of and then they can focus on strategic yep. work exactly right like you know they're what not, they're actually yep. subject matter experts in right you know, well, you're not paying them because they're good at excel you're paying them because they understand accounting or they understand reservoir engineering <laughs> yeah like so yeah um just let them work on yeah. a more higher value work what uh, and, I, and i'm always very cautious about this but i think it does resonate for a lot of folks lately um, around like the build versus buy, which is, I just, I asked the question like, Hey, are, are we an oil and gas company or are we a software company? <laughs> oh yeah. Right. And we are not in the business of building the best software solutions. We're in the business of building and delivering the, the best economic wells and production to our shareholders. And so, um, to your point, once we start thinking about the cost of everyone's mm -hmm. time, um, we, we emphasize that a lot when in the decision to build versus buy, right? Uh, how quickly can we do this internally versus externalizing this? Um, are these the best players on the field to be doing this? And so there are companies like EQT today, um, EOG comes up a lot where they have some amazing talent, right? And they very much should be continuing to, to build internally because they've acquired that talent yeah. over the last 10 and 15 years. However, for other organizations, like, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're gonna even remotely get the best software talent because yeah. the best software talent is going to Silicon Valley. They're going to work for Facebook, yeah. right? And we're kidding ourselves if we think that the software talent that we're hiring, you know, for a West Texas Permian company is even really remotely be able to compete yeah. with a software company where that's their sole focus and their sole job and they're gonna be the best tool or player on the field to solve that problem. And so being a little bit um, less, less, egotistical prideful around you know what we're the best at and really just encouraging people like you need to focus on what you're the absolute best at and surround your, yourself with other individuals that are the best players on the field for those specific you know use cases and problems yeah uh, that's so spot on because uh there's i mean there's so much there right like the the <laughs> the again it just boils back down to that time piece right like if you can subscribe to a software that's $10,000 a year that prevents you from hiring someone that's $50,000 a year. That's pretty easy, yeah. like back and forth, right? Like it's, but mm -hmm. yet that becomes such a like difficult thing for, you know, generally speaking, the industry to kind of think like just, you got to change the way you think about it. Right. And yeah. then to your point too, right? Like not only are we not getting the, we're not going to be able to compete for that talent, but even then it's like, okay, they're looking for it. They can pay them if, if let's just say, hypothetically speaking, everything's on par as far as compensation and stuff. But then it's like, oh yeah, but you need to be in Houston or you need to be <laughs> here, right? Like it, just the mentality, the mindset of the, the way they approach it, right? Is it's like, why would I live in Houston if Facebook's willing to pay me the exact same amount of money to let me live wherever the hell I want to, right? Like, and there's just that much right. little extra nuance there and all those little things too. And so it's, uh, 
Yeah. And then on top of that, even if you built the software, you still have to maintain and, <laughs> yeah. yes. and manage you can retain it. that person. Because even if you got that unicorn, yep. there's nothing to say that you're not going to get recruited by mm-hmm. <laughs> Silicon right. Valley or, you know. What, yeah. And we always, what happens if that person gets hit by a bus? Mm-hmm. Yep. I think, um, I think it, going back to like when we started, um, I see a lot of desensitization in the industry right now. And it's a function of just having like, inferior type of solutions that we've just gotten accustomed to yeah. like oh there, there isn't anything best this is just the way it is i'm okay waiting for my peloton well view to take 15 minutes to load or the fact that every click is another minute or two to load in this somewhat archaic legacy style interface like why are we still working in in you know folder directories yeah right um and it just comes down to education of where i feel like if if the industry had understood, like there's other solutions out there, here's what they feel like, then I think a lot of people would almost have, you know, um, the analogy I use is like, we're walking on a treadmill that's like at an 8% incline, although we have no idea we're at an 8% incline until you get off that treadmill and you have no incline, you're like, holy shit, I was on hard mode (laughs) for the last three years. (laughs) This is easy mode now. Um, And, you know, reinstilling that belief um, that, that there's always a different way to do things. And sometimes the way we're doing it today isn't absolutely the best. And it comes down to like, okay, if we can quantify how much time that's costing the organization or the things that we can't do, then then we can determine, is this something, is the juice worth the squeeze? Or is it truly like, no, this works for us and we don't need to focus our time versus instances where thousands of hours are being allocated to it. But our mindset is like, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been. Versus like, no, we should actually be thinking about this differently because this is unsustainable. If we lose these two key points in the process, the process is going to slow down dramatically by 60% because of that tribal knowledge. And so all goes back with with Salesforce. It was getting the tribal knowledge out of our team members. That way we could be the most efficient operator, right? Let's not take eight weeks to onboard a new technical (laughs) member. Let's take a week, right? And to do that digitally as far as no, all you need to do is, you know, go to this one page right. here, not these eight different applications yeah. or 15 different bookmarks in your browser. Um, yeah, here's the guide. Of disparate yeah. system Everything's linked directly in the guide, just like a notion <laughs> page or something like that. And it takes you directly where you need to go. Right. Like that's uh, yep. well, and to your point too, right? Like y'all use Salesforce, but you didn't get rid of everything else, right? Like Salesforce is the repo <laughs> and you still had right. the end users using the tools that they knew or wanted or liked or were best or whatever uh on that end so it's I, I completely agree like that this kind of centralize the important information make it easily accessible to everybody who needs it so yeah you're not having to build dashboards for people to be able to see you know all these things it's like it's accessible to anybody in the company how and it's accessible the exact same way every single time right um i'm curious actually on some of your your uh experience and and both good and bad on kind of R and Python tools and libraries that you used during your time and some of the, the different projects you were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a lot of time and it all goes back to uh, our passion for backing combo curve. Uh, spent a lot of time mutating libraries, um, specifically the ARPS DCA package within R. And Derek um, Turk. Just by the name. Former guest. Yeah. Sorry. Derek Turk. Was on the we oh, were first the guest. author. Yeah. Yep. 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 So um, that's really where I cut my teeth in programming. We had a 
a big project where it was my brother's expectations that we could put an EUR on every single well producing in the country because they're they're not the smartest guys in the world that I know, hands down, but not petroleum engineers that like understand that oh, like you can put a function in Excel that will tell you the EUR of the well. No, like that that is an analysis and an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so I cut my teeth when I had my big project to forecast an EUR every single well in the country because the mindset was how do we know that the dollars we're investing in the Marcellus is the best use of dollars in the country. Yeah. We're very mindful of getting the best return for our shareholders. So we need to be ultra, ultra confident that we should be continuing to invest in the Marcellus versus some other play. And to do that, we need to understand what is our interpretation and viewpoint on every single play in the country. And fundamentally, that comes down to every single well. So spent a lot of time kind of custom tuning, fine tuning our ARPS TCA packages, a lot of our, our modeling. Um, and then leveraging some of the stats packages there. I spent a lot of time um, learning uh, about distribution normalization models. I see a lot of, I'm not going to throw rocks here because I think there are specific use cases for that, but I see a lot of black boxes yeah. on the market around predicting well performance. And the thing that really resonated for me was when I, I, I started off on that path, you know, doing some type of random forestry modeling, yeah. right? And it would, it would spit back to me some answer. And um, my, my brothers, Toby and Derek would be like, okay, now show me three yeah. instances that like I can see on a scatter plot or some other bar chart that like communicate that trend. And then that's where I had empathy for my customers, which was like, oh shit, like, I, <laughs> I can't show a simple scatter plot that communicates um, stage length has a higher order variable yeah. influence on well performance. It's good, trust me. Intensity. <laughs> yeah, right. I got it. And so and I didn't have that that luxury with my brothers. They they held me to a higher standard in terms of being able to communicate and get everyone on the same page. Like, why are we focusing on our stage and our perf design rather than pumping four thousand pounds per foot, you know, where where what the, the market is, right. you know, trending. And so I needed to be able to put things that everyone could understand. And so I went from more you know, black box ML models that I, I couldn't explain yeah. why they were saying what they were saying. And I went more towards it, a hard coded um, distribution normalization angle. So when I look at a distribution of wells of a population that have these type of features, right, and I compare it to a different sample set of wells with a different set of features, now I can understand how performance is related and I can scale the distribution of one set to another set. And that gave me the cold comfort of being able to explain, um, well, why do you think this well would have had a 40% uplift right. if we did this other completion design? Well, here's that sample set of wells and their performance as to why I'm scaling this well up or down 50% of what it otherwise could have done if we did this other completion design, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. I mean, explainability is a huge piece. And that's why, I mean, everyone wants to rush to their, like you said, random forest or XG boost or whatever, but it's like, I mean, sometimes again, linear regression, if you can make that work, if, and if, it, if it's within a similar amount of uh, properties, um, you know, uh, what am I missing the word, but like accuracy, yeah. Um, then, you know, it's going to be much better because again, most people can look at a, a plot and see, right. right, here's a line, here's how <laughs> it, you know, fits, fits the points. I mean, like they can yeah. understand that, but if you just give them a, well, this is, you know, 5% better, but <laughs> right. as a deep learning model, like, so what? I don't even know what the heck happened in there. And then you don't even know if you're overfitting. You know, there's yeah. just so much that goes into it. Yeah. And 
And uh, I always just thought back to um, one of my professors at A&M. He, he would joke like, you know what a reservoir engineer does, guys? And like, you know, we get all these technical answers that were like super in the weeds. And he would just dismiss all of them. He's like, no, we draw straight lines through things that are not straight or linear. Yeah. That, that's what we do. <laughs> and so I took that like to heart in terms of how can I linearize mm-hmm. all these non-linear equations. And so my passion for data analytics, it, it actually started in um, 13, 14 um, around uh, quantitative multivariate analysis. I had a project at Chevron that I proposed, which was how can we understand uh, these completion design trends? So this was Delaware Basin. There, there was less than a thousand wells drilled in the Delaware wow. Basin at this time. And so, <laughs> you know, cut my teeth with data mining, um, the Railroad Commission in New Mexico, putting all that into an Excel sheet. And then my mentor at that time, um, Bryant Folk, you know, educated me on like, this is what I don't want to see, Ryan. And he would show me examples where there was just like a shotgun a scatter plot. And he's like, you know, here's this, this arbitrary straight line fit with an R squared less than 0.2. Uh, but I can draw a vertical line through these data points that has a stronger R fit. Yeah. And so I better not see this, you know, in six months, Ryan, this is, this is an example of what I'm looking for. And I took that to heart and really just started chasing down. How do we start normalizing our data sets? Um, to account for that peripheral variable influence. And so um, that's, those are some of the services that we do at ResNet even today yeah. around intelligent flow control and helping engineers understand the multivariate uh, problems present when we're thinking about how do, we, how do we optimize our asset development program, right? Should I be focusing on well spacing? Should I be focusing on completion design? Or alternatively, should I just be focusing on optimizing my drill schedule to mitigate against future children infill right. If that's the if that's the one thing I can do, that's an easier problem for me to solve than um, you know potentially come up with a new theory around modeling the subsurface that you know tells me this completion design variable is more important than the other. Yeah, I think one of the big like challenges that a lot of people have in our industry, especially because we're full of engineers, is uh, one everyone has to know how things work, right? So like black box AI, not going to cut it, even if it is better um, most of the time, and then. You know, the other part of that is, you know, this kind of back and forth between physical and statistical models and analysis, right? Like you've got, and typically it's very divided. You're either in one camp or the other most of the time. (coughs) Excuse me. But I think a lot of uh, my observation so far has been, it's like the best solutions end up being a hybrid of both, right? Like being mm-hmm. able to 100%. statistically model the physical characteristics or statistically model, you know, the things that you believe are going to happen based off all this historic stuff so that you can quickly turn around and make, you know, if it's for an operational decision, it needs to be fast, right? You can't go run a mm-hmm. basin model for two weeks and then come back and be like, oh yeah, okay, this is, uh, <laughs> now we've got the answer, right? Like, Thanks Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> I needed the answer right, two weeks right. ago. And so like, I think that's where a lot of people struggle because you, you know, oh, well, you know, like we were talking about frack hits and parent child stuff, right? Like we've known for a long time that we've been getting communication and stuff like that, but people struggled so long with like, how do we model that and stuff? And like one of the best solutions that came out of all of that was Devon's where they're monitoring, you know, offset wellhead pressures at the surface with, you know, better gauges, higher resolution gauges, but it's a pure statistical model because it's based, uh, my understanding of it is it's mostly just based off forces, right? Like it's a very basic uh-huh. thing because at the end of the day, even if it's, you know, 
the nano darcy's are slightly different or the young's modulus or the brittleness or whatever are slightly different when you look at everything on a net scale the rock generally speaking acts exactly the same right uh, they might fracture in different ways they might do different things but within a reservoir within a field the rock is low perm <laughs> nano darcy rock like it, it doesn't matter what what parameters change 100 feet out from the wellbore generally speaking but like you have to start normalizing some of those things to do statistical models, which a lot of people like at the core struggle with where it's like, but the rock's different. It's heterogeneous, right? Like my, you know, yeah. all of those it's, things. It's heterogeneous if we're, if we're comparing two grains right. in the rock, but <laughs> on a 1000 square mile basis, this is the most homogenous type of rock that you would get. Cause it's, it's variable in the same degree, um, you know, section to section. So you're absolutely right. I think really focusing on what's in our control and then focusing on what's on our control versus what's out of our control. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We've had the most success with a hybrid type of solution that is going to be founded in physics, right? Yeah. Right. But then mutated and invented with respect to statistics and probabilities. Yeah. Cause I think you saw and a lot so with like can, type curves as well. I mean, I know yeah. like when I was at Conoco, it was like, I think they went and tried to do all the traditional, you know, physical models and the technology group. And then it was like, no, if we just do a, p10 p50 p90 and, and again a group like wells together in a you know a certain g lot with, based on certain parameters we can actually get a really good prediction of what next wells are going to do well yeah that's the whole thing is it's like it you having explainability is a good thing right like being able to have a logical reason for why you made a f calculation or went through a workflow is like where all of this should be started at the end of it right mm -hmm. like because you know, one black box, there's no way to, to explain the logic of how it ended up with that answer. But then two, it also helps you figure out how you're going to get there, right? Like, Hey, if, if I need a real time or near real time answer, a model, a physical model <laughs> is not going to work unless we throw a shit ton of, you know, compute horsepower at it. And then where do you do that? And how do you pay? And it's expensive and all this other stuff versus, Hey, you know, like the, the speed of your data is important. And a lot of people don't even think about things in that term right like yeah you know your production data do you need it more frequently than 15 minutes maybe at times if you're doing a specific but test are we making or, a decision right exactly right like there's are we actually going to make a decision if we get one minute data <laughs> yeah or is that just actually going to complicate right it's going to 15 x everything <laughs> right um and so like you mentioned um devon's approach with interference modeling um we're actually working with devon around um, one of ResNet's services around what, what we do is flowing well interference tests. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is empirically, statistically based. Um, and being able to have that explainability, yeah. right? Um, and so we've taken that approach because well spacing, communication, mm -hmm. child infill is, is absolutely kind of the highest order variable when we think about optimizing the, the development program. Um, the problem that we have um, fundamentally with something like a child pressure group, or in this case, even more bespoke with the, with the GQI, is I have to shut in a well, mm -hmm. yeah. right? So I, I either have to shut in a well or I have to do it opportunistically with respect to, I'm gonna be shutting this well because of an offset right. crack. Well, um, I can empathize with engineers with respect to like, well, I'm not gonna get this data for every single well. So how much should I be trusting this insight? Because it, it's one data point um, across dozens potentially, and fundamentally, I would like to have a solution that I could theoretically apply to every yeah. well. And if we can solve the production deferment problem without having to shut in wells, that's interesting, right? Yeah. And so um, that's one of the ways, you know, as any bootstrap startup, we need to work with operators to understand fundamentally what are the true problems. 
but we also need to stay alive, yep. right? Be able to keep the lights on and make sure that everyone can pay their bills. And so we spend a lot of time on the services side of our business with these bespoke um, flowing well interference tests yeah. um, where we're making very small minor control changes with the chokes on service. Those are making pressure disturbances between all the wells. And we developed at Rice Energy you know, a workflow to be able to take that pressure data to quantify the level of communication between wells. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun. But in some instances, I still see some engineers where you know, because they can't model it in their reservoir right. simulation model, they they write it off. Yeah. Whereas it's like, hey man, but if we all look at this data right here, we would all fundamentally agree that right. there is something yeah. going on. Even though, and if we can all agree as to what that variable is, I necessarily don't need my reservoir simulation model to be able to replicate that. Yeah. Right. Even though y'all um, come up with the different empirical data, y'all come up with different models. Theoretically, if you did, if you both did the same you know, reservoir model, right? Like you might use different inputs. You might tweak something here or there versus, yep. Hey, here's the statistical data. We would literally all draw, draw here's the, the same data. conclusions. Empirical data yeah. is king. Yep. 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 So let's make sure we take some time to talk about ResNet. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly um, where I wanted to go right now. So let's talk about some of the design choices. Cause I mean, I think there's two sides of it. I mean, it sounded like, again, you said at Rice, y'all were working from, you know, the lease to the wellhead. Now you're talking about working backwards from there. So there's that side of it. But then also, um, <clears throat> what about like design choices? Like, again, you got to start in 2020, again, clean slate, modern technology. Like, yeah. what did you choose? Why? I mean, did you go cloud? I mean, on-prem? You know, like all these different kind of um, design yeah. choices. What what DBs, what cloud, and what uh, language? Stack or whatever. Yeah, what's your, what's your stack generally? Sure. Um, everything's on AWS. Um, that was a rather easy decision, just seeing where a lot of startups were, were heading. They were heading there for a reason, right? And I wasn't going to overanalyze that as to why are you making the decision? Maybe I should be looking at Azure instead. Um, AWS just had kind of a better reputation from all of the actual tech guys yeah. that I was talking. So they're, they're not in oil and gas. They're in traditional ERP right. SaaS. Unequivocally, all like, no, you're going AWS. So we, we built everything in AWS. As far as our backend goes, um, Similar solution as I try to approach all is usually a hybrid is going to yield you the best results. So we have both a no SQL backend through Mongo. Um, we do that for a lot of our, our containers and our document management. Mm -hmm. um, just an easier, it's the best hammer for unstructured data. Um, so we'll use Mongo for a lot of uh, our containers with respect to dialogue. Dialogue and communication is a huge component of our solution. Um, and then we'll also just fundamentally, you need to have a relational database, right? So uh, we started with Postgres SQL, just very easy, breezy, something we know is going to work, right? Um, but recently migrating to a more uh, better solution, which is Redshift Serverless through AWS, which is essentially just Postgres like on mega steroids. Yeah, that's, um, that's like the data warehouse. So I mean, so, so you're using that more for the data like warehousing or data an analysis side of it, I mean, because um you know typically you'd use postgres you know with a web app for some of the transactional type data but you were using it to you know chew through the data and everything as well so using like redshift to you know chew through lots of data and do it, do it quickly yeah so anything that i would say is is um more of like a a digital tool to replace something that we would otherwise be doing in person so like communication mm -hmm. we're going to use a lot of mongo for that but anything more technical 
which would be like more of an analytic tool or a model or something that needs to run a scenario on, that's going to be more structured relational database that's going to be usually living in Redshift. Cool. And then what uh, what language did you build it in? Node.js is on the back end, so JavaScript. Yep. Um, and then the front end is going to be React, React. and React Native cool. for the mobile app. So I'm an engineer in the industry. What what do I come to uh, to ResNet for? What is ResNet going to change for me? What does it do for me, so to speak? How's it going to make my life easier? Um, I, I would probably start out with a discovery. Um, we, as a platform, we have a lot of different products and features for different flows right. or problems and pain points. A lot of where our current partners are leveraging some of our solutions um, start off more on the, the data and the dashboarding piece. And so when we think about the digital evolution of an operator, um, Toby came up with this and then I refined it a little bit, just being the little brother, I always have to you know, make it a little bit better as an engineer. Um, but we think about providing engineers and your field force with what we call a 4D experience, right? And so when we kind of survey the landscape, I think we would all agree that for the most part, operators today have fundamentally a strong data foundation, right? Um, Bobby, you, you guys are using Snowflake and everything and you're managing the data analytics. Uh, there's no doubt that you guys understand how you need to be structuring and accessing and, and you know transforming your data set. Um, but in instances where that's a problem, we can be helpful. Then when we think we now we need to be able to visualize our data. And, and so the second D of the 4D experience is our dashboards, right? And we pride ourselves on making something beautiful, something that you like to use every day that's very self-intuitive. Um, a lot of operators, you know, especially the larger ones, feel very confident around their dashboarding capabilities. Um, now, where we see the world getting very small, very quick, are operators that feel that they have great data, great dashboards infused with dialogue and in communication. And so our journey with a lot of our partners starts off with providing a more robust um, insight foundation, right? So it goes back to, I feel the pain points of the engineers, especially in instances where like they might be having to migrate from Spotfire to Power BI. But if I can give a tool to those engineers that respects what IT is looking for in terms of centralized repository as far as those analytics, we found that IT is a little bit more open to allowing the engineers to use the tools that they, that they use. So we have an integration middleware solution where a lot of our engagements start around centralizing your analytics and your insights. And then a lot of our features are gonna come down to taking that insight and driving it to action at the end of the day. Um, and so on the office side, it's about organizing our systems, our processes. When we think about production operations and how do we get the right person to the right job at the right time? How do we have the accountability that you know our managed scheduled maintenance issues are being taken care of in conjunction with emergent right. issues, right? Uh, a pad is ESDing the second. That's a higher priority than me perhaps greasing this wellhead that can wait a few hours, right? And so a lot of our tools and features are gonna be centered around ultimately at the end of the day, driving insight to action. And how do we organize that in the best way possible such that it's transparent to the entire organization? How do we, how do we maximize our GNA efficiency, right? Um, what we wanna stop is two engineers potentially doing the same problem, right? Yeah. right unbeknownst to one another. Well, that, that's a conflict for the business. We are allocating double the resources to the same problem. But if we can have 
something as simple as a Kanban board that a lot of software developers yeah. use, right? Well, now I know what my peers are working yeah. on. And so a lot of the, from there, once we help build a more uh, better data foundation and insights, um, that's where the journey starts. And so we, we have a lot of skill sets with respect to centralizing all the different data tables, insights that production operations teams have to use to get the, the job done day to day, right? And there's 12 plus different systems and, and data um, sets that go into that, right? As a production engineer, um, I care about, you know, obviously what is this well doing today? And what is this well doing in rel relative to how I might model it from an, uh, from an operational perspective? I care about what our forecasts are, right? Because, um, you know, we might have a certain, um, we might be graded in terms of how we're compensated as employees right. around budget versus actual, right? With respect to what we're communicating to the street, right? So we need to have our reserves and forecasts. We need to have our costs in one place yeah. when we think about prioritizing that work. Um, we need to have good dialogue um, so that way we can understand, well, why did we make this decision in the last workover? What did the tubing look like when it came out of the hole? You're saying there's a lot of holes in the tubing due to H2S. How do I know it wasn't wear and tear from the pump? Right. Right. Well, let me see the actual pictures that came, you know, from that work over. And so a lot of it's just fundamentally focused on communication and providing conduits through which engineers can better organize their technical work, better prioritize work orders that need to be executed out in the field. Um, and then from there, we, we have a wide suite. It really depends on who I'm talking to as far as some of those other feature sets go. Um, but whether it's operational campaign management, right, and being able to understand we have 80 different initiatives out in the field and we're each one of these initiatives progressing, right? And seeing that in real time. Right. Uh, a good example of that might be the pressure that we are feeling as an industry to respect the recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act, right? Um, starting in now, 2025, they, they've punted the, the start date on when we start getting fined. But starting in 25, we're gonna start getting charged $1,000 per ton of fugitive methane emissions. So. I see a lot of startups focusing on the detection right. of those methane emissions, um, but fundamentally we need to execute yeah. on yeah. something, right? So great, I have emissions coming from this facility. Well, I need to replace the pneumatic devices within this facility. And I have to also replace the pneumatic devices across all of our facilities. Right. And that's where I see um, not a lot of organizations having the visibility that I think yeah. that the shareholders deserve to have, which is, all right, we have 3000 pneumatic devices that we need to retrofit or replace over the next 18 months. And hopefully management has the visibility to communicate to our shareholders as far as how we are progressing on that campaign so that our shareholders can sleep easy at night, that we're not gonna get hit in the face with a thousand dollar per ton charge. And so that's where we focus a lot of our workflows and our features and our tools, which is allowing the engineers to do what they're going to do. You guys are, we're never gonna stop building yep. new solutions, new custom bespoke code or dashboards. But what I wanna be able to do is give you tools where you can connect those tool sets democratize that across the entire industry and then digitally execute on that work and provide that transparency to upper management. And you've, you've also added a layer of gamification to it too, right? Like, cause that's as a, <laughs> I became a mechanical engineer cause I wanted, I hated how things were designed and how like poorly, how poor the user experience was. And this literally started with my car in high school, but, um, you know, like so many people don't, and, and lots of users of oil field, software especially legacy softwares understand this but like the ux and the user experience of traditional oil and gas software is so bad and so being able to add things it's, like gamification and just a modern ui to things can just completely change how 
people use your stuff. So I just want to give you a, a second to kind of talk about the gamification piece before we have to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Um, to your point, I think that was the first thing that we focused on at ResNet. Um, for me, it was having the empathy of like, I never had a tool that I actually fundamentally liked using at right, other than Salesforce yeah. uh, and Spotfire and, and Altrix, right? I had my tools that I loved because they actually fundamentally helped me with my day. But other than that, it was always like a chore, yeah, yeah. right? And so that was the first thing that I wanted to solve for this industry is providing a platform that people love to use. And it has to look good. It has to feel great um, if I'm going to love using it every single day. Mm -hmm. And if that's my expectation is this is something you will use every day, well, it better look and feel great, yeah. right? So it started off on the design front. I think that that's something that we've allocated a lot of resources and investment towards, um, making sure that you know this this feels great. It looks great. I like working in this. And then it came down to the gamification. The gamification actually, um, like a lot of the things that we're building at ResNet came from some observations that I had made at Rice Energy. Um, and the story that I tell is, and I, I'm repeating myself here because I was telling Colin and Jake it last week, um, but we had just made a large acquisition at Rice Energy. This was in 2016, 2017. You know, we had bought out Vantage for, for 4.4 billion. And, uh, you know, Toby's uh, you know, on CNBC telling the street, you know, these promises, uh, like any great founder, you know, does around um, what we're going to be able to do with these assets and really stresses that we were so efficient at Rice with our digital tools and our architecture that we were going to be able to absorb these assets with no new hires, period. And, you know, being one of the guys like in the trenches, shoulder to shoulder with the team members, and I'm just like, what, what did you just promise, man? <laughs> uh, that is physically impossible. And let me tell you why, right? And I'm looking at our work orders and how many issues we're having every single day and the typical number of issues that we're able to take care of every single day. And out of you know thin air, here's another 200 sites and almost a BCF a day of gas that we need to manage and somehow, some way be able to manage this with no new people. Um, and Toby just like laughed at me when I was just like, why would you do that, man? And he was just like, well, this sounds like a you problem, Ryan. This sounds like a technology <laughs> problem. And I was just like, what the fuck? Okay. So, you know, I'm for six weeks, you know, plugging away at my keyboard, trying to, you know, automate these data transfers, these processes, working on these form fills, you know, to save the guy an extra 10 seconds yeah. every day, thinking like that somehow is going to influence how many work orders he can do. But at the end of the day, nothing's going to influence how much time it takes to move that wrench. Yeah. Right. And during that time, um, Salesforce had, had released its first and one of its only um, gamification features around custom badges. And... Um, culture is something that, you know, is very important to me, but more importantly to, to our family and, and the businesses that we run. And so, um, you know, after a hard day's work, instead of, you know, going home to our wives and family, you know, like, who would do that? You know, we were, you know, ordering pizza at the office and we would just be like, okay, what are some other KPIs and milestones we can digitize for these badges? And so every night we're creating all these different badges, you know, oh, execute 10 work orders in a single day or for drilling, you know, drill 10,000 feet in a single day or complete 10, 10 stages per day. And we just started thinking for every department, how can we start digitizing these badges? And it, it was just fun at that point, something fun for us to do that was still related to work. Um, but during that journey, I, I, I started to notice in some instances, maybe Toby and he wasn't walking around the office as often and, you know, shaking people's hands and giving them a, you know, hey, good man, good job, man, on that. And, and um, you know, I came to him, I was like, hey, man, I, I don't think we should be replacing, you know, that that face-to-face, -face, you know, recognition that kind of makes us special with these badges. 
I don't know if we're going to get the same results. And he just like dismissed me. He's like, no, man, the, the people are going to love it. This, this is awesome. And I was just like, no, no, like this is bad. But then, you know, I was looking at our actual work orders, right? This was something that I was focused on and everything I was doing wasn't actually moving the needle. Um, but then as I started to look at the data, um, I noticed a peculiar trend where for our top 20% of our field op operators, right? Kind of Pareto's principle, mm -hmm. you know, the yeah, top 20. 20 people yeah. do 80% of the work. Um, I noticed about a 30 to 40% uplift in their work order efficiencies. Um, and it was statistically significant, right? I had four years of very consistent data from, you know, guys that were just absolute workhorses. Um, and for to see a stepwise change in their efficiency, that was interesting to me. And so I called um, one of my one of my buddies, one of my best friends up. I said, "Is Kenny G?" And I was like, "Kenny G, you got to tell me him what what is your secret? I'm noticing that you are absolutely killing it lately, man. You're up forty percent in the last six weeks alone. Are you taking steroids? Are you juicing? Like, do we need to juice the rest of our field?" And he was just like, he started laughing at me. And this guy, you know, mind you, he's he's in his late fifties. He's laughing at me, and I'm like, "Why are you laughing at me, Kenny?" And he's like. I think it's I think it's those stupid badges that you and your brothers keep making every night, and like I was I was literally jaw dropped like, wait what? Because I'm thinking like I'm giving Toby grief about this and I'm totally wrong in this point and Toby's right again, right again type of thing, but he's like yeah you know see I yeah I used to wake up in the morning I look at this long laundry shit of stuff I gotta do in Salesforce and you know it's great I don't know I know exactly what I need to do and when and where and, and you know it makes my life easier but. It's still a laundry list of shit I got to do every day. But now um, the first thing I do is I go to Chad's profile page and I look at the last badge that, you know, you or Derek gave. And it becomes my life mission to get that badge, Ryan, because, you know, I'm the number one field operator in Green County. You know that, right, Ryan? And I, I'm just on the phone with him. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like I, 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 I thought I found like a cheat code, yeah. right, in a game or something. <laughs> and so that that was the first insight um, that got me interested in perhaps approaching problems differently, right? right? To that point, I had been very technical, like, hey, we have to have good code, it has to be well organized, we have to get a process to this. And it started to open my mind a little bit more to like the human yeah. element of the business and the cultural element of the business. And if, if we can provide a system, a workforce recognition system that fundamentally taps into those drivers, right, that motivate people, how can we motivate people in the best way possible? And so that was one thing that we've really taken to heart with ResNet around our gamification. And so, um, you know, uh, my experience with gamification has just been like most other guys and or girls in the industry with, you know, video games, right? right? Yeah. So I had my ideas of like, oh, we can do this and this. And then um, it wasn't until we hired our head of um, product experience, her name's Erin Fair. Um, you know, she's dedicated her life to gamification, studying, um, you know, social behavioral psychology, um, she's an adjunct pro professor at West Westminster University, and so she opened my eyes into no, there's like this is not only an art, but there is a science yeah. to it, and here's why. And so that's something that we have allocated a lot of resources um, towards building, which is a native gamification system that really is essentially tapping into the different personality types yeah. that that are that make every human you know a unique snowflake to some regards. Um, but in gamification lingo, it it's um, your player archetype. Yeah. So, you know, you can do these personality tests that, you know, sometimes they use colors mm, yeah. or, you know, animals or whatever. <clears throat> um, in gamification land, it's what player archetype are you? Are you a killer? Like you like playing Call of Duty? 
Or are you more of an explorer, like someone that likes playing RPGs, you know, by yourself? Or are you more of, you know, a social gamer where you can't be bothered to play single player game modes by yourself? You only get enjoyment out of a game with playing with your friends. Um, And it's taking all of the different player archetypes and what features, what behavioral um, tendencies can we inject into the system to understand, you know, what makes this individual tick? How are we going to be able to tap into that person to motivate them intrinsically, not only extrinsically, but intrinsic motivation? Um, because that's the number one driver <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, right? If you don't, if you don't love what you do, you're you're probably not going to be the best player on that field. But if you fundamentally love what you do, it's very easy for you to be a competitor and to be the best player on the field. And I think that that's you know, kind of to some degree, our higher mission is to provide everyone the opportunity to be the best player on the field. Um, and so things like, you know, um, bespoke field data collection initiatives, right? Um, as an engineer, I have deep empathy for all the shit the field has to do on a given day. They're the ones keeping the lights on, keeping the gas flowing, keeping the oil flowing. Um, if I, as an engineer opportunistically want to understand if there's casing hangers on a wellhead, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I'm reluctant to ask my field operators like, hey, when you guys get a chance, can you take a picture of every single wellhead and then put it in this, you know, folder and also, you know, name it this way. That way we can, you know, hook all of our systems and it it all works great. Like, no, I'm never going to ask my guy to do that. But if I could gamify some of those initiatives without, you know, it being a, a specific initiative, something that we opportunistically do in this case, we'll implement a playlist, a challenge playlist where we can digitize some of these behaviors like taking pictures. And so if I want to get updated pictures of all my wellheads, because that, you know, on an inspection basis, that's just something fundamentally good to have, right? For our engineers to know what the wellhead looks like in the office, they're not going out to the field. Well then rather than force my field, just another thing they have to do, right. perhaps it could be more opportunistic. Like, hey, you'll get extra XP points today if you take a selfie, you know, by, you know, a wellhead yeah. and you tag the well. Yeah. And so they get XP and then we can tie those XP to not only extrinsic rewards, but then it ends up fundamentally becoming intrinsic once people can compete and see where they're standing on certain initiatives. Um, And so we can track all of that and we can make these, you know, initiatives a little bit more fun. I think you are, you're onto something really big just because it's, I mean, as you mentioned, right, it's in video games, it's on Reddit, it's on, you know, more and more, every new app, there's, you know, an onboarding checklist or, uh, you know, you get points for onboarding and filling out your profile and all these yeah. things, right? And it's... it's you think about your career development, yep. right? Like, here's all, here's my resume, yeah. right? And so um, that that's not our focus right now, but when I think about collaborating with digital wildcatters around, you know, potentially jobs and workforce, mm-hmm. right? Well, if I can provide tools that do this intrinsically for, you know, the, the employees for the, for the team, right. it makes it really easy to provide a world in which, you know, you can see fundamentally what is the experience of person A versus B. Here's exactly where their skill sets lie. You know, he, he's, he specialized in these specific types of workovers versus these other types of, you know, facility upgrades and maintenance, things like that. Um, And so it really just comes down to providing easier tools that we can use to illuminate these data sets right now um, that aren't being measured. They're not being tracked. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Um, we are right at time, which yeah. is crazy how quick that went. Um, Cause I, 
time flies when we're having yeah, fun. Yeah, no, no. We're going to be, we're going to have. We always say that we could sit here for like three hours, but no one wants to listen to us <laughs> talk that long. <laughs> uh, no, we'll be having some, some more conversations as we start uh, putting together all of our, the gamification stuff that we're working on with Collide. So I'm excited about that. Uh, that, but we'll roll into to wrapping it up. We typically end it with just a speed round. We'll, we'll kind of pepper you with a couple questions. Just give us your, your gut answer. Your short answer. answer. Short answer, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. Do you want to kick us okay. off? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, who's your favorite uh, social media follow? Next Wave EFT. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> what about? Yeah, I don't know. If you you got to follow him. He's got some very strong technical, but also, you know, funny content saying what I think a lot of people are thinking. Has to be Next Wave EFT. Sweet. Those, are, those are the best. Or they know what they're talking about. And that's on and Twitter slash X yeah. for people who are not aware. Yeah. They're not. He's a he's an anonymous. Yep. Um, but shout out to Next Wave. <laughs> shout out. His content's absolutely fire. Um here's a good one. What are some of your favorite uh R Python packages? Libraries. ARPS DCA. <laughs> that's just probably my number one. Shout out. Um, shout out, Derek. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh and then just the basic stats package. So not a good answer, probably. Kind I of mean, basic, it makes but... it makes sense. But what's your uh, what's your favorite place to go on vacation? <laughs> Mountain beach uh, or my, my wife? My wife would say I don't go on vacation. Yeah, there's that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I work. Uh, it has to be snowboarding though. Yeah, Lo- love to board. That that's one thing where I can I can actually unplug and yeah. kind of an adrenaline junkie to that degree. So probably boarding. We'll we'll wrap it up with this last one. What uh, what's some advice you'd give to someone getting looking to either transition into the energy tech space or coming out of school, trying to get into the the energy tech side of things? Number one, that's a great question. Number one piece of advice, or just some advice that you've kind of picked up along the way from your your experience. Be okay being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, that's usually when, when you're growing the most, um, have empathy for your peers, right? Um, there, there's a lot of ego in this industry. Uh, I think we'd all collectively agree with that. You know, you're people talking about pissing matches and mm-hmm. I think that's just the nature of our business, right? Because it is a dog eat dog world. Um, but having empathy for your team members, because if you can be a good team member, I think that probably when I think about advice for someone coming into the industry, probably going to open the most doors for you in terms of being helpful yeah. because this industry is so small. You don't know if, you know, the good Samaritan act you did for someone yeah. is probably going to pay you 10 to a hundred times return on investment at some point in your career. Um, and so just always trying to be helpful yeah. to your team members and understand where are they coming from and how can I meet them halfway? Yeah. Or vice versa too, right? Like, I've I've known many uh, sales guys that you know overpromised and underdeliver just because they knew they were going to get that commission on their whatever. And yeah, then, like, uh, do, like do what you say you're going to yeah, do, yeah. right? Um, I think fundamentally everyone needs to do that, right, and and have that accountability. Um, cool. No, that's yeah, a good I, one. I'd probably stick with the empathy. That's a good one. Where can uh, where can people find you? LinkedIn, Twitter, Resnet. Not the best social media guy. Um, never, never have been, been posting pretty, um, but I am on link pretty good I'm on LinkedIn, but trying to yeah. learning, yeah. learning from the greatest here, um, 
I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on X. Uh, my handle's uh, Do You Even Frack, bro? Um, <laughs> same, same handle on Collide. I got your notification the other yep. day. Yep. Um, I'll be, uh, you know, creeping on Collide. Seeing some good content and some good questions and then from the community coming on there. How can people find out more if they're uh, interested in chatting about ResNet? Um, they can go to our website and if they fill out a form, I can promise you that goes directly to me. <laughs> um, and we will reach out within five minutes, um, unless it's you know at 2 a.m. in the morning, then I'll get to it the first thing in the morning. But they can quite simply go to our website, fill out the form fill. Um, that goes directly to me. Or you um, alternatively, you can DM me on LinkedIn um, I try to check that probably once a week, um, or they can email me quite simply at just Ryan at resnet.ai. And it's R E S N E T dot AI, correct? Correct. Cool. We, uh, we appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys having me. No, this is excellent. It was a lot of fun. We'll do it again. Take it easy, Ryan. Appreciate All it, man. Right. Thank you. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.